Today we're going to be talking from Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. I believe that this passage, this event, the story is tied to most everything we've already studied in the book of Genesis. I think there is a connection between what we call the fall in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, a tie to the flood in Genesis chapter 6 through 9, and now we have in Genesis chapter 10 the table of the nations, and in chapter 11 we have the tower of Babel. The table of the nations listed in Genesis chapter 10 essentially marks a fulfilling on the part of mankind to be fruitful, to multiply and fill the earth. That's what God told people to do after he created all things. And so actually, Genesis chapter 10, uh, if you were looking at this from a purely chronological uh, way, would come after Genesis chapter 11, okay? So really, you have the nations listed in chapter 10, but then chapter 11 kind of goes back and tells the history of how the nations came to be. And there are 70 nations listed there, and of course, we brought this out many times over the years that in Jewish numerology, the number seven, the number 70, uh, these numbers simply are symbols that represent uh, things, and the number seven, the number 70 represents totality. All the nations, 70 are listed, but essentially this is a reference to all peoples everywhere. All nations, all tribes, all countries, everything. So God's creation, according to the table of nations in chapter 10, is man filling, fulfilling God's plan. Of course, there's a problem that arises in chapter 11, and we want to deal with that. I'd like to talk to you briefly this morning about ancient Babylon. That's where the word Babel comes from. The word actually means gate of God or gate of the gods. And so as we go through this, it's going to give you some insight into the culture. Mesopotamia was the most populated, the most prevalent part of the world. It is what we would call modern-day Iraq and Iran, that whole area of the world. It was founded by Nimrod on the Euphrates River, according to Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. Nimrod was a mighty hunter, a mighty warrior, and so Nimrod was a, probably one of the most powerful men in the world of his day, and he built many cities, actually, and Babylon was one of them. It came to be the most famous city, probably the most largely populated city. In fact, uh, many archaeologists believe that it was probably the first city in the world to reach uh, 200,000 people. It's located about 60 miles southwest of modern-day Baghdad, 
and it was referred to as the jewel of the kingdom. So it was the capital of the country of Babylonia, and it was famous throughout the world. In fact, its walls are said to be 350 feet high, 90 feet thick, and 100 brass gates all around the walls of the city. Just try to imagine something like that. If the walls were like that, you can only imagine what might have been inside the walls. Archaeologists have determined that the architect, the uh, design abilities, the craftsmanship was unbelievable. It was much greater, much higher, much more beautiful and intricate and ornate than that of any other part of the known world at that time. The hanging gardens of Babylon were said to be the seventh wonder of the world. And so these towers, this tower of Babylon, many such towers, at least the remains, have been discovered over the centuries in this part of the world. And they are called ziggurats. They are essentially man-made mountains, sort of like the pyramids, right? But the structure was uh, somewhat different, and uh, they were simply man-made towers, and they usually had a temple uh, either at the base and very commonly at the foot. There was a temple, I mean, not the foot, but the top of this mountain. And the reason why is that the higher they went, the closer to the gods they were. At least that was their understanding. And so they wanted, they wanted sort of to be like the gods, like God. The very thing that the serpent tempted Eve with in the Garden of Eden. Oh, God knows, you know, did God really say if you eat of this fruit you're going to die? Did he say, did he told you that? No, 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 you're not going to die. The, the fact is God doesn't even want you to eat this because if you do, you're going to be like him. He don't want you to be like him. You want to be like God? Eat. And it's the same thing. The same exact thing is going on here. The difference is that was the individual and this is corporate humanity doing the exact same thing as what we find in the Garden of Eden. So these towers that were built had a religious significance to them, and they also were very meaningful to the people that built them because it was an example of how great they were, their skills, their power, their abilities, that sort of thing. And so here is just the one artist's rendition of perhaps what one of these may have looked like. Like I said, Archaeologists have discovered these, and so they obviously had some idea of what these ziggurats looked like. So religion and government were closely linked in this part of the world at that time, and the cities 
were regarded as the property of the gods, and humans were expected to do whatever the gods asked of them or however they uh, directed their lives. And so they were actually saw themselves uh, as sort of priest kings. So as the rulers became more and more powerful, they controlled larger areas of land, and they increasingly conjured up all of these divinities, all of these gods and goddesses, and they referred to themselves as having been selected by the gods to rule. So politics and religion was uh, definitely a mixture in all of this. Now, the prophets in the Old Testament condemned Babylon's arrogance. Uh, these are just a couple of passages, there are many others. Babylon was called, as we said, the jewel of the kingdoms. It was the head of gold in Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 2. And then in Jeremiah uh, 51, verses 52 and 53, it refers to the Tower of Babel and God's judgment against her. So, the Bible speaks about this whole thing long after uh, because Babylon came to be a very important symbol. It represented something. It is a story that represents something. And so what we want to do today is we want to try to identify the meaning of the story. We want to understand why this is in the Bible and what relevance it may have to us. So what was the sin of the people? Why did God look at what they were doing, building a, uh, an ancient skyscraper? Why was that upsetting to God? Well, obviously, based on what we've already said, the connection that they had to the gods and the goddesses of this world, that's what they came to be. But actually, at this time, particular time that we're reading about in Genesis chapter 11, uh, I'm not even sure to what extent, if any, that the people worshipped any false gods or goddesses. We don't have any information about that. We don't have any record about that. So evidently what they're doing is like we said, related to what happened to Eve in the garden, they're trying to be like God. They're trying to reach God. They're trying to elevate themselves to a state, to a place, to where they have no business, okay? So, verse 4, the people said, otherwise we're going to be scattered abroad from the face of the whole earth. Now remember, God's already told them to be fruitful and multiply. God has told them to scatter across the earth. Fill the earth. But that's not what they were doing. They were doing the opposite. They were, they were congregating. They were gathering together. They were staying in this one part of the world. They weren't doing what God told them to do. So in essence, it's direct disobedience to the will of God. So we need to keep that in mind. Verse 5 says, the Lord came down. The Lord came down. We need the Lord to come down. In a lot of places, in a lot of ways, Lord, come down and take care of this mess. In verse 8, 
the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. Notice how the punishment fits the crime. This is not a class on parenting, but there's a good point there, parents. Let the punishment fit the crime. That's what God did. Babel, as we said, meant gate of God. And Babylon actually was a city where Marduk became the primary god. Now notice the difference in spelling here. Everybody see that? So what God is actually doing, God is making a play on words, a play on the language. Babel meant gate of God. Babel meant language of all the earth. Or mean, uh, and so Babylon stands for humanity's rebellion against God, and it is marked by confusion, where the people have all of these different languages, and now they cannot communicate with each other, and they cannot accomplish their project. So the gate of heaven is turned into confusion of speech and the dispersion of humanity. So that's what's going on here with Babylon. God later used Babylon to punish his own people, Israel. You remember the captivity? You remember when uh, Judah followed essentially the ten northern tribes into idolatry and paganism and all of that? And so God sent the Babylonians uh, down there to destroy the city, to kill the people, and a, a remnant of them, a lot of them were taken captive and they were put uh, in the area of Babylon. They were uh, transferred there and they stayed there for 70 years. So God used this evil, wicked city in order to punish his people. And then he turns around and he punishes the wicked city for doing so. These events occur, occurred in the early 6th century, and God punished Israel by sending them into exile uh, because of their disobedience. So Babylon became a symbol throughout the Bible, Old and New Testaments. Babylon became a symbol of evil, of powerful evil. And so when you're reading in the New Testament about the principalities and the powers and, and, and the authorities and, and the rulers of darkness and all of that kind of thing. That's really what Babylon is a symbol of in Scripture. So any nation, any world power, any great ruler, any sort of uh, political uh, social system that exists that is against God, any thing that is against God, any organized uh, nation or power or institution that is against God could be referred to by the word Babylon. And so, Revelation 17, 8 declares Babylon to be the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. In chapter 18 of Revelation, it talks about the destruction of Babylon. And so we can rest assured, based on this passage towards the end of the book of Revelation, 
that regardless of all of the evil powers, regardless of the evil government, regardless of all the evil systems and organizations, regardless of all evil political powers and all kinds of things that go on in the world today, regardless of the reality of their existence, the day is coming when they're going to be ultimately destroyed. They're going to be destroyed. And that was one of the visions in the book of Daniel. Of all of these world powers, and back in that day and time, four world powers were mentioned and referred to in the vision, ending with the Roman Empire. But when it predicted the kingdom of the Messiah that would come, it says that his kingdom would destroy all other kingdoms. His kingdom will rule and reign. And so we need to keep in mind that ultimately what is going on in the story of Babylon is the confusion of the world. It's interesting in Scripture that, uh, and, and in the ancient Jews' way of looking at things in their symbols and signs, that the word see refers to chaos, the chaos of the nations. That's what the word see represents in apocalyptic language. And so when you get to the book of Revelation, you get to the end of the book, and remember, throughout the book, remember the references to sea in the book of Revelation. That's where you have monsters and dragons and creatures and rulers and kings and crowns and horns and all of these things coming up. The beast, the dragon, the awful powers of the world come up out of the sea. Well, the sea's the world. A world of chaos. A world of nation. A world of people who have rejected God. But then you get to the end of the book of Revelation and it gives us a picture of the end when the Messiah comes and what the afterlife, if you want to call it that, will be like. The Bible says there was no more sea. Why was there no more sea? Because Jesus is going to overcome and rule all peoples all peoples and the nations as we know them the world powers as we know them they're not even going to exist anymore because there will be one power the power of Jesus Christ there will be one kingdom as Luke prayed there will be one nation there will be one race of people and those will be the followers of Jesus Christ, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So Babylon has been the symbol and the subject of many interpretations, but it's basically a type or a shadow of all evil powers, all evil rulers that reject God. So how did all this start? Where did all this come from? Well, I want to read some verses of Scripture. I'll share these things with you. Psalm 89, verses 5 through 8. You might want to take some notes on this. You might want to listen to these passages 
because you're probably going to want to go home and study them. All right? Psalm 89, verses 5 through 8. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A, great, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord? Now, look at the passage. The heavenly ones, the holy ones, those gathered around the Lord. A council is mentioned. In other words, with God, with God are a multitude of spiritual beings. Remember in Colossians 1 when it talks about Jesus created all things, it says all things that are visible and invisible. There's a lot that God created that you and I cannot see with the human eye. And there are beings, there are persons, there are realities of beings that exist that are not human beings, okay? They're not humans. They're angelic beings. We call them angels. But there are different kinds of angels. There are different states of being. There are different powers and authorities among angelic beings. There are cherubim. And when you read in Scripture the picture of a cherubim, Google it if you want. Just Google it and look at artists' renditions of what a cherubim looked like. Whoa. Interesting, to say the least. There are angels like Michael who's called the archangel, the big dog angel. There are other angels that seem to have immense powers and authorities over other angelic beings. But however you, you look at it, they're all messengers. They are all administrators. They are all beings that serve to carry out the will of God. But these angels have free will. They have free will. And you know what happens sometimes with free will. And we'll get to that shortly. Job 38, verses 4 through 8. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? In, uh, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Listen to this. This is talking about when God created everything, right? At creation, there were supernatural, angelic, heavenly beings that watched it happen. They were there. So, they had already been created. 
Before God created the earth, before God created man, God created angels, angelic beings. And they were there and they watched it. And the Bible says they sang. The stars sang. So you know these stars are not literal stars, right? Because literal stars don't sing. In fact, if you study stars in the Bible, you'll find that all through Scripture, stars represent powerful beings. Some of them angelic beings. Some of them rulers, world rulers, powers, and authorities are represented by the stars. And so the stars sang when God created the earth. And then it calls these stars the sons of God. The sons of God shouted for joy at creation. So this is before, these aren't men, these aren't human beings, but they are sons of God. They are created beings that God made. Again, angelic beings. Job 1, verses 6 through 8. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Satan's one of them. They're sons of God. They're with God in heaven. Job 2, verse 1, on another day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. Now listen to Psalm 82. This is what's going to tie everything that I'm reading here in these verses with Babylon. Okay? And what happened in Genesis 11. Psalm 82, the first eight verses, I believe is connected with Genesis 11. God has taken his place in the divine council. Now we already read about that in Psalm 89, right? The divine council. Here it is again. God has taken his place in the divine council. Well, we also read about that in, in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. In the midst, okay, don't freak out, people, okay? I want you to see it in your Bible, okay? I'm not making this up. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. In the midst of the gods, who is this? What is he talking about? Well, this is the divine council. Clearly, if you look at the context, these gods, sons of God, are the divine council. And this is what God says to them. I want you to think about this. God is rebuking these sons of God. He is rebuking the gods in the divine council. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, listen carefully, you are gods sons of the most high all of you nevertheless like men you shall die like men you shall in other words they're not men like men you shall die 
and fall like any prince. Prince is another key word, kind of like the word stars. Sometimes in the Bible, a star is not a star, okay? It's something more. It's something else. It represents something. Same thing is true here with a prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Deuteronomy 3, verse 24. What God is there in the heaven or the earth that can do according to your works and according to your mighty deeds? Psalm 97, 9. For you, O God, are most high over all the earth. You are highly exalted above all the gods. Now look at Revelation 5, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. God sent out seven spirits. What's the word seven mean, remember? Anybody remember the word seven? Totality, complete, all of them. So, isn't it interesting that the book of Revelation, when it begins, is addressed to how many churches? Seven. And in each one of them, it talks about the fact that they each one have a spirit, right? So, really, representatively, the symbolism there is the seven churches with the seven spirits simply is a reference to all God's people, all the churches, and all, all the churches have a spirit, an angel. The church right here has an angel. We have an angel. Isn't that cool? This church has an angel. But don't get the big head because all churches have an angel, okay? So God sends out these spirit beings over all the earth. Now look at Daniel 4, verse 13. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher. A watcher. Who knows what a watcher is? A holy one come down from heaven. Look at verse 17. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. And verse 23. And because the king saw a watcher a holy one coming down from heaven. Now I want you to look at Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, and verses 12 through 14, and verses 20 through 21. I'm not going to read all that for the sake of time. But it talks specifically about princes, the prince of the kingdom of Greece, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And an angel was fighting with them. Michael the archangel is fighting with these princes. These aren't people, folks. These are not people. These are angelic beings over nations. 
God has sent out the spirits over all the churches. There's spirits over all the nations, folks. There are angelic beings, good and bad, over the nations. And what happened at the Tower of Babel in the scattering of the nations is that God disowned the peoples of the world. Isn't that what he did at the flood? What did God do when Adam and Eve, what did God do with the people? He ran them off. He drove them out of Eden. What did God do before the flood? He was fed up. He was done with them. He destroyed them. He drove them out. He cleansed the earth. He got rid of all that sin, all that wickedness, all that evil. He's done with it. That's how God feels about sin, folks. And now, later, as there are more and more people over the earth, and especially in this part of the world, God is done with mankind again. So what does he do? We're left hanging. In Genesis chapter 11, we're left hanging. Genesis chapter 12 finishes the story. God disperses the nations in confusion. Ever since then, nations all over the world have waged war against each other. They've fought. They've sinned. They've rejected God in one way or another. They have oppressed people. They've done all kinds of damage, all kinds of abuse. The world is in a big mess. But God was not finished, and he is not finished, and he rose up a man by the name of Abraham, and that's who we're going to talk about next time. And through the seed of Abraham, God begins his work to create a new nation of people. Praise him, come on up. A brand new humanity. God is creating a new humanity. So all the other humans, all the other nations, what were they called in Scripture? Gentiles. Gentiles. You know what the word Gentiles means? It means nations. God rejected the nations because the nations rejected God. He rejected them. He put angelic watcher beings over them. And those created a lot of trouble. This is one of the most fascinating verses, uh, passages in the Bible, and I'm going to be done. I, I, I was going to skip it, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to share this with you. Well, I thought I was. Here it is. Job 4, verse 17 through 19. Can a mortal be innocent before God? Can anyone be pure before the Creator? If God, listen, if God does not trust His own angels and has charged His messengers with foolishness, how much less will He trust people made of clay? They are made of dust, 
crushed as easily as a moth. Job 15, 15, look, God does not even trust the angels. Even the heavens are not absolutely pure in his sight. Satan's not the only fallen angel. He has a whole host of demons. And some of them rule, oversee, are administrators of nations. That's why the world's so messed up. People want to blame God for all the bad things that happen in this world. You are barking up the wrong tree. There's a lot of evil and sin in this world. And today, I hope you can see from the Word of God where it came from. And I hope that in doing so, you understand how very much you need Jesus Christ.